Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hey, Nancy, how's it going? Good. Hi, Julie. Good to see you. This is my first time zooming into Behind Our Door, but yeah, uh, you sound great. Same warm feeling. Mm -hmm. It sure is. I'm super excited today. Today we are welcoming back Dr. Patrick McGrath. He is our expert in everything anxiety, OCD, hoarding. Um, gosh, he's a plethora of information, and I couldn't be more excited to have him back. He is also the chief clinical officer, officer excuse me, of No CD, and he'll tell us more about that as we uh, begin. Welcome back, Dr. McGrath. Welcome well, back. It's thank great you. To have, great to have you back. See you both. Uh, Nancy, since you're not in studio, does that mean you're not behind the door right now? Only <laughs> Julie's playing? Well, isn't that, I, I love that. Let's see. I would say I'm I'm behind a door, maybe behind not door, our yes. exact door. <laughs> but, but our door. Not our door. Good no. question. Very good question. Just thought I'd ask. I wasn't sure how that was going to work. So let's start by talking about a little bit about hoarding, because um, in my experience, which is very limited in it, um, I know people joke about hoarding a whole lot, but in my professional career, obviously we run into it all the time. And because mm -hmm. it's not um, dangerous or violent or people don't take it seriously. And we found it hard as police officers to get people proper help, you know, yeah. when we take people, patients in um, to the hospital. So maybe you can break down what it is, what it looks like, and how do we intervene? Yeah, and it's still hard to get people help, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, my some of my colleagues through OCD Midwest, we have the uh, the hoarding task force in Chicago. Uh, Dr. Greg Chasson is is kind of helping leading the way. A colleague of mine, Rodney Benson, and his group DASC has done work. We do work with hoarding virtually at OCD as well. Too, uh, I did some of the hoarding. TV shows. I was on Hoarding Buried Alive. I did three of those as well, too. So trying to bring awareness to hoarding. And um, I, I'll start with saying something that always takes people a bit aback. But hoarding is a problem of discarding instead of a problem of acquiring. Oh, I like that. Very interesting. And, and here's why. You could no longer be acquiring things and still have a hoarding problem. Hmm. That's so because of all the things that you already have in your home, right? So many people make an assumption that you're always bringing in more and more things, but that doesn't have to be the case. And there are many people who bring many things in, but many things also go out at the same time. So you can keep a status quo. But for people who are struggling with hoarding, the biggest concern is that they are not discarding things. And therefore, there's a buildup of things in their home. And their home has now become a storage area instead of being used for what it ought to be used at, which is a living place, a place where uh, family and guests could come and sit around and watch television, have a meal together, or a place where somebody could come in if needed right away to fix an appliance or, or a furnace or, or something of that nature. And that, of course, just can't happen in very many homes where hoarding is occurring. Would so, you just, I'm sorry, Nancy, go ahead. Now, I was going to say, so, um, you know, I know we'll get into this, but it's interesting that you say that because then you picture a person just wanting to live amongst the, I don't want to downplay it with a word like clutter, but amongst the mm -hmm. 
hard to move so many things. Um, that seems to be something that for someone who's lacking something, needing that warmth around them by so many things, part of yeah, this, well, you're, you're getting closed in by any clutter. So many reasons for hoarding, right? I mean, we could, we could spend a very long time talking about that, but one reason might be, let's say that there's been something that's happened in your life and you're literally building a wall of stuff around you to protect you and to keep people away. So, and, and, you know, whatever words we use, uh, clutter is fine. Stuff, stuff is, uh, uh, very often, uh, there's even a book called Stuff, right, <laughs> about hoarding that's out there. Uh, I try not to use the hoard or something like that. That that can seem a bit extreme to a lot of people. And of course, people who have concerns with hoarding are not a big fan of the word hoarding. They like to think of collecting and or they have a bit of clutter or something of that nature. So I try to really match the wording that's going on with them as well, too. I, I not trying to be offending to them in any way. So I, I'll use that kind of language. So we could we could talk about the clutter uh, of, of things around them and all of the various reasons why we might hold on to something and have trouble discarding it. Yeah, like there's something written about the five stages of hoarding. I remember once being at a senior center thing, you know, regarding mental health. And there was something about the, you know, there's such a fine line of clutter and collecting. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have a hoarding situation, like you say, too many things inside. You know, there must be a sort of a gradual way that this problem occurs. You start out just, I like a lot of things and, you know. Well, and and it could, it could even start out in in childhood, actually. Very often it does. And. The only reason that it's not really noticed early on in people's lives is they have somebody else in their life who is really taking care uh, of things, right? Uh, you probably have the intervention of a parent who's coming in and making sure that the clutter isn't going beyond a manageable level. And if there's an appearance of it doing that, they they intervene. And so you might not notice a lot of clutter in people early on even though they have the tendency for hoarding at that point in their life, it, it will take until they be more out on their own and uh, have their own space to be able to fill that up before you would actually notice that there would be a hoarding concern. Would you say that hoarding is based in an anxiety or is it based from trauma? How would you categorize it? So right now, here's what we know is that hoarding is related to obsessive compulsive disorder. It is in the OCD and related disorders area, but we also know that it is not OCD in the way that we think of OCD in the way that, say, we talked about OCD in the last uh, presentation that, that we went over when, when we reviewed it, because in hoarding... Um, on the surface, it may look like people are compulsively gathering things, right, and bringing things into their home. But it never really fits so well because the definition of OCD says OCD is two things. You have obsessions, which are intrusive thoughts or images or urges, and then you have compulsions. And compulsions are 
mental acts or behaviors that people do to neutralize the obsession. So we've sometimes misused the word compulsion and said that anything that we like to do or do a lot, uh, we're compulsive at, right? So, so when you see people who are gathering things, you think, well, they're compulsively gathering, but it doesn't fit the definition as we describe it in OCD. So therefore, in the latest diagnostic manual that came out in 2013 through the APA, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, fifth edition, you have hoarding become its own diagnostic category under the umbrella of OCD and related disorders, because there are some similarities that you see between the two, but they really are distinct problems. They uh, they are not one of another. They are they are two different types of things. So. Now, going back, Julie, to your question, uh, many people will ask, is there a trauma that is involved? And uh, it doesn't have to be at all, right? I mean, I've heard from people who say, no, I just enjoyed really collecting things and going, even as a kid, going down the alley on garbage day and seeing what people were throwing out. And I figured I'd take it and bring it back in the yard and I'd fix it up one day. And and then I found other things and I went on to the next project. And then by the time that I knew it, the yard was full and the garage was full and my parents were yelling at me, there wasn't any space. But then there's other people who say we're um, in families that had to move a lot and all that you could fit into the station wagon was what went with you to the next place. And so they never had the opportunity to even have a lot of things. And so then once they settled down, maybe later in life, they took full advantage of the fact that they had a space now to have things that they could never have before. I I heard one story from someone I worked with who said, you know, I I was sitting in the station wagon and back in the, the old seats, the the back one that's that faced out the back window, even if you mm-hmm. remember those. And, yes. and uh, we, we were in some of those, Julia, as, yes. as uh, teenagers, I believe. <laughs> yes, we were. And, and uh, you know, you're driving away and there you look out the window and you see your neighbor who you had to give your bicycle to is is riding down the road, waving at you while they're on your bicycle and you're driving away and it's not yours anymore. So that that kind of experience could play a role for people in in later on wanting to gather things and then you even have people who might be in assisted living who they have to go in every two weeks and gather all the dishes uh, because they brought every dish back to their room and they didn't want to give it back there seems to be some kind of an eight innate experience in us to maybe want to hold on to things or identify things as being ours these are our properties and our possessions and one last piece and we'll get into a few other things here but from a neurobiology aspect there's fascinating pieces too i actually worked with someone once on one of the hoarding buried alive shows who had had a, a stroke and they had to go in and put a clamp into to close off this one uh, big tear in in one of his arteries that he had. And in doing so, it was right at this part of the brain that we know uh, from a neurobiology standpoint helps us to control hoarding and clutter and what we do with things. And he went from having a very kind of sparse house with, he was a successful photographer and musician, to when he got home, he started hoarding. So whatever got hit at this part of the brain, whatever was damaged, mm-hmm. he lost that control that he had had because that part of the brain was not there anymore. And he became a person with hoarding disorder uh, right away. Wow. Mm-hmm. something. So back to when you said, now this has its own category, hoarding disorder. Um, 
What what year did you say that happened in? That they- uh, I believe it was 2013. Mm-hmm. So so since then, do you feel as though this is being talked about more? I mean, I look at it yes. doing crisis work of people calling from communities about their family members that they're trying to get help um, regarding hoarding. It's always been a tough resource to find. And now fast forward, there are more resources. It's it's at least talked about more now, wouldn't you say, now that there's its own, it has its own category and it's absolutely. And there's more research on it as well, too. Yeah, um, very interesting. I mean, it's I didn't even realize that, but um it's just another big advancement in mental health. Right. We have writings on hoarding. You know, Dante's Inferno talks about the fourth level of hell is for hoarders and uh, and gluttonous people, I believe it is. And then you've got uh, Gogol's character, Plushkin, who just collects everything. And a guest one time comes to his home. And so he goes to the cupboard and he takes a cake that's been sitting there for seven years and scrapes the mold off of the top of it and serves that to the guests that come in. But Gosh. really in the early 1900s, in like 1913 uh, or so, you have this famous case of the Collier brothers. And the Collier brothers were two brothers in New York. And um, it, it's a fascinating case because, uh, what were they? Oh, it was, it was late 1930s, early 1940s. That's what it was, not, not 13, 14, 30s and 40s. And so these two brothers live together. And they're very eccentric. You know, one of them's known for kayaking to work on the Hudson River every morning, you know, oh, and everything. Just there's a lot of eccentricities. They even bought the house across the street from them because their house was pretty full of stuff and they were starting to fill that one. Mm-hmm. One of the brothers uh became uh unable to to uh be mobile anymore and so was basically living in the interior room of one of the homes and the other brother would go out and get groceries and and various things and take care of him there was a lot of paranoia though in that family and after the parents died even more so and so there were tunnels that were actually built and booby traps and one day the brother who would be able to go out accidentally it seemed set off a booby trap And all of the stuff collapsed on top of him. He died from being crushed. And then the other brother who was blind and and wasn't had no mobility anymore, eventually died of starvation in in the home. And it wasn't until about a month and a half or so that the neighbors were like, you know, we haven't seen them in a while. And the police came to do a wellness check and discovered that the house was filled to the ceilings in this home and you can look it up online. It's fascinating. If, if anybody wants to see pictures of it, it's uh C O L L Y E R. That's how you spell Collier. Uh, you could see all the pictures of the Collier brothers. They actually started taking all the stuff out of the basement first, but the house started sinking oh. as they were doing that. So they had to switch and go to the top floor and just start throwing things out the windows from the top floor to get the weight off of the house. And they had to do it down instead of bottom up or else the house would have collapsed and that's how much stuff was was in the home see and i find it interesting that it was not only one brother but both brothers yes well and and the one brother might not have had much say about it. i mean both of them were kind of on the eccentric side so mm-hmm. they might have started out more on the collector experience of it but uh, they definitely when when the one brother wasn't able to do anything anymore in the home, the other brother kind of seems to have really run with it. 
So, so I have a question thinking of all of this, um, what you're saying and the descriptive that, you know, we can all sort of visualize if someone is, when somebody listening to this podcast is saying, you know, that's definitely my mother or my father, brother, whatever, friend, and they've tried to approach this person saying, let's clean up this place, which we all know from just experience, even seeing this in the movies recently, I think of this movie made that with Andy McDowell and her daughter plays in it. The daughter is a maid, ends up being a maid for people that are hoarders. And you see, it's very, it's, it was a, a nice surprise in the film, but you see that way that, and she sort of learns just as a person who wants to help people clean up and she also needs money, how to not dive in and say, let's just clean this up because it would just tear somebody apart. I mean, you have to very carefully know how to approach the situation and start taking things out or even talking to them about it. So back to my thought, if somebody is listening to this and saying, oh my God, this is my situation with so-and-so, what are the first words and communication that someone can use to this person? You know, the usual of, I think you really need help here. This isn't sanitary or whatever it is. I mean, how, what are some suggestions to start the ball rolling on one person saying to their loved one or for, or whomever, we got to clean this up. How do you sort of, any suggestions on broaching the topic with somebody like this? Yeah, from the nicest standpoint possible, right? Because anger is just going to shut everybody down in this situation and stop any dialogue going forward. And I've seen that happen time and time again, where families just are alienated from each other because of this, this problem. And, and the, so, wrong, the wrong approach of someone thinking, God, such a slob, you know, misunderstanding and saying, just right. clean up this place where it would freeze somebody, I'm assuming. Yeah. And and on the flip side, people who have a, a hoarding will often say to their family members, I just need a day or two and the house will be in perfect order. Which we know also is not true. It would it would take months to years to be able to get the home back to where you would want it to be if you were to do it on your own by yourself. And that supposes nothing else entering the home starting today as well, too. Like this, not, not one like more thing done, coming to the house. Yeah. But OK, so what's the second step there? If that's that sounds like it could be a common phrase for many people that are sitting at the hoarders sitting in their own house saying, OK, I'm just going to push it off to the side with those words. What's the second What's the second phase of that? What's the comeback? It, it all depends on the situation, right? Because sometimes the situation is the city has gotten involved and there's inspectors coming to the home to see what's going on. Sometimes the neighbors have called because there's an infestation of rats that they've noticed in the property and they're coming over to their property and their house as well too. And they've watched where all these rats are going or... Why are there so many cats that go to this house all of the time, every day? Or um, there's a complaint because the yard is just filling up with more and more things. The garage is falling down uh, because it's not cared for because you, know, you don't even put a car in there. Any, or there, if there is a car, it might be buried under all mm -hmm. sorts of other things. But you you can't get in there to do any repairs to anything. And so that call leads to a knock on the door. And then if the door is opened, 
a view into the home and uh, a chance opportunity for inspectors, social workers, police, uh, community police, all those types of things to have to intervene in these types of situations for the health and welfare of the people that they are now intervening with. Um, You know, Julie, you, I don't know if you know this, but in, in our old neighborhood in Jefferson park, um, there were three sisters who lived together on, uh, I think it was on Gunnison. And they were the ones that would go to church every week uh, that they had the, you know, the donuts and they'd bring the baggies and they'd fill the baggies up with extra donuts and they'd stuff them in their purses. And all of their clothes looked like they were, you know, 30 or 40 years old from various uh, Salvation Army or, or, you know, retro-y types of things. And uh, according to everyone that knew them, though, they they probably had more money than anybody in, in exactly. our entire neighborhood. Yeah. Who you're you know, talking you know, about. Who I'm talking about. Yeah. Yes. Uh, they came to the jewel all the time. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you know who I'm talking. About. Mm-hmm. One of those sisters died and the other two dragged her outside and then called 911 to say she died because they did not want the emergency services coming into the home because they knew if they did, they'd be in trouble. Right. But the last time I checked, you tell me police are not fond of you moving a dead body. I, I don't know. I've just yeah. I've heard. The, <laughs> no, I would. No, I guess. I would suggest that if someone dies in your presence, that you just leave them lying. And yeah, let them you really should handle. not be putting them on the front porch. No, no. <laughs> Gosh. So, you know, that's the, uh, that's the level that people will go to in these types of situations to try to prevent being found out. Now, if you have a family member who's like this and they call you and they're in a panic because the city has shown up, there's been a complaint and they've been told you have such and such time. Uh, it, I will pretty much guarantee that person who has the hoarding issue is not in the wherewithal to find a specialist to come into the situation right now. So it behooves you as a family member or friend to say, we're going to have to find a specialist and we need a probably a professional organizer to come in as well, too, and for people to start working together. And uh, as quickly as possible for you to work with myself and a group of people that you trust, that you allow us into the home to start going through things. And this is where the organizer and the therapist can come in and help set up parameters for what will go or not. I I personally like the four box method where you get a keep box, a donate box, a recycle box, and a throw out box. And you have to fill each of those boxes before you get any new boxes. You know, some people say, oh, I just filled the keep box. I need another one. No, you got to fill the other three as well too before you get a new one of those. And that way you can effectively reduce down what's in the home to a quarter of what's in the home, which is typically what would be the minimum that a change that you would need in order to make a lot of the inspectors pretty happy with with the changes that have been made in the home. Um, and you, if you get the buy-in, great. But if you don't, the other piece then has to be a little bit of tough love in these situations. I have a lot of people who have uh, children and who tell their parents, Listen, mom and dad, you will not ever see the grandchildren in your home. We we will not bring them there. It is not safe. It is dangerous. We're not comfortable with them being there. If you want to ever see your grandchildren, you're going to have to come to our house and see them because we will no longer allow our grandchildren to be in the house. 
it's just too it's just too uncomfortable it's just too dangerous for them to be there there's so many slip and fall experiences there may be mold uh or or a lot of dust and it, it's just not good from a respiratory standpoint even for people to be in those homes and if it's been a pet hoarding experience there's probably feces and, and urine mm-hmm. and urea and ammonia and all of the other smells that go on when you have the infestation uh of of like animals gone feral basically living in the right. home and and what they do you know, I was going to ask, though, I, I assume even if you try to have this intervention that let's say we get all these people in place and we go in and we clean out their house, unless they're going to continue some type of therapy, correct? it's not going to sustain. Yeah, and yeah. So back, just to double back on that question of Julie's, um, I was thinking just before she was saying that you said this is hoarding is related to OCD. so to have some sort of success in not having this reoccur. If you do, you know, let's say someone's evicted, they just have to, they got to go, mm-hmm. you know, there's sometimes that place. happens. Yeah. Right. That, I think I know from one personal story that that happened with eviction and, you, you know, just have to, there's no choice there, but mm-hmm. then a person is a person, the, the, the core is still there. They could do it all over again. Is something like um, CBT, you know, I'm thinking of OCD treatments CD, CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, is that something that could be used in the way of um, the way that has good results to retrain? Yeah, yeah. Um, really, I mean, something's got to really change. Ab- absolutely. And so, you know, to combine those questions, um, you do want to be sure that people get help. You do want to be sure that after a successful intervention, which hopefully there's been one, that they continue with help. You want an organizer still coming over to the home now and then to make sure that things are staying organized and not going back into old behaviors and things of that nature. And you really want to help people learn to sever the ties that they've established to things. Uh, there's, There's a great deal of emotional tie that gets into stuff, right? Uh, one of them might be this. Well, how could I throw this shirt out? My son wore this the first day of first grade. And if I throw it out, I'm throwing away the memory of my child. Or I'll never have this again. And what if I can't ever remember it again? I don't want to lose the memory of my child's first day of first grade. I have to hold on to this. Now, this shirt might have been through three floods and is just moldy and smelly and has been eaten by bugs and has a bunch of holes and it looks like a piece of Swiss cheese. But the fascinating thing that I found, and I don't hear a lot of other people talking about this, so this might just be me, but I have found this. People with hoarding don't see the shirt as being moldy and and with a lot of holes in it, they still see it as it was the day that they remember it. It, it, There's, there's this, I don't know if some kind of thought process that just brings them back to that, um, that emotional experience. So it doesn't really matter what it looks like. In fact, I, I go back, uh, you know, there's various shows on TV that they should probably just, uh, instead of calling it by the names they have, they should probably call it. We show up at people's houses who have hoarding and we try to buy stuff from them is what they should really call those shows. And one of them was there was an old federal desk that was out in a cornfield and 
they offered this guy a hundred dollars and he was offended. He was like, this desk is worth $300,000. And their reply was, yeah, it would be if it was inside and it hadn't been out in the rain since the seventies and hadn't had all these worms that are living in it and been broken in these three places and everything. Uh, sure. There's the little spot right there. That's got the mark of the maker. And that's a famous maker from the 1700s, but guess what you let this thing sit outside and, and, the guy who owned it was just still, no, it's $300,000 if you want this desk. Okay, guess what? No one's ever buying that desk. And that desk is just going to eventually, after this person passes on, it, someone's going to come in that field and plow it under, and that desk is just going to be destroyed by a combine, right? One day is what's going to happen. But in this person's mind, it was still this beautiful piece of federal furniture that needed to be revered, and it was worth you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we may say it's a Burger King receipt from 1972, but it might as well be a Picasso, mm -hmm. right? Because there's meaning attached to it. Because what if somebody wants to know what a Whopper cost in 1972? Might take me three months, but I'm going to be able to tell you. Sure, you could look it up online and know in 30 seconds. But wouldn't it be cool to have the actual receipt? I know I've got one somewhere. I'm going to go find it. Right. The other thing that happens in hoarding is, though they they may say they're going to go find it, there's there's a lot of what I call southernism going on in hoarding because really it's a lot of I'm fixing to get ready to go find it, which means I'm never actually going to find it, but but I'm fixing to get ready to go and actually do it. So maybe maybe one day I'll get ready to go do it, but it. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to ever really happen. So people are very stuck. So going back to Nancy, what you were asking then about the therapy piece, part of the therapy is to motivate people to do this, right? There's a huge motivational interviewing component to this to get people to face their fears and their discomforts and to get rid of the things that they have surrounded themselves with that they think could be useful, could have monetary value are emotionally connected to people or places or things. And to ask me to get rid of this is just like asking me to maybe get rid of a family member or a friend, because that's how I think about stuff or the 40 cats that live in the basement. Yeah. You know, when you were saying all that, I was thinking about that. I think we often forget about the emotional attachment to everything. It's not just stuff. To mm. there's, right, right. There's a meaning behind everything that's in that place. Maybe we don't understand it, but to them, it, it means the world. You never will understand it, right? No. That's why when you pick up a, a used can and say it, it's a used can with mold inside, to them, it could be, well, yeah, but I could scrape the mold out. I could put some dirt in it. I could put a seedling in there and I could start growing a plant in it. And then I could plant it in my garden. And then when I start the garden, I'd have a bunch of zucchini. And then I could take that zucchini to the homeless shelter and I can donate all those zucchinis to the homeless shelter and then people will have food. So no, you can't throw that old can away. Right. And what if somebody in their family passed on? Then there's a higher emotional connection to... Oh, these... Many of these folks become the repository of all things of the dead relatives, right? So everybody is just like, oh, well, Jane will take it. And then the truck comes and Jane's house gets filled with more and more things. And no, one, and no one's been in Jane's house to know. No, you know, no. no one's been in there to know this is really a very serious problem. So they'll know that that relative will always take this and they, yeah. no one's been in there to see. Exactly. 
No, you I was talking about, I'm sorry. I was talking more <laughs> about like when you lose somebody that's yeah. close to you, now you're holding on to everything yeah. that they ever had and you can't let it go. That's what I meant. Yeah. You oh, know, okay. just like family or friends, you, you become the holder of the stuff. Right. 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 Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. So, so what about the person now that's listening to this episode and they're thinking they, first of all, they tune in because they see it's on hoarding and they think, I wonder, this is kind of getting out of control in here and I can't let anyone in. And now, like you say, the grandkids can't come to this place because uh, everyone thinks I, you know, really am living in, uh, you know, a mess. I really need to do something about it. Let's say that they want to see the grandchildren or whatever is motivating them. What What is a good step to take, you know, that brave step to take to get help to pull yourself out of this? What's, I mean, you know, what's something the person who's listening with struggling with this can do? Uh, allow a professional to assist in this because they can be the neutral third party, you know. As, as we said earlier, families can get very, very angry very quickly in these situations. And I've seen huge blowups over, you know, what this thing means and why it needs to be around. And, you know, even to the point of, yeah, but when I die, I'm just going to pass that on to you. Mom, I don't want it. And if it gets passed on to me, I'm going to throw it away. You don't love me. You don't want the things that I want. You know, just I've seen those arguments, right? With people. I feel like you were in my I house. My parents have even said that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> it feels that way, doesn't it? So a neutral third party, you know, can come in and you can even work with the family and say, okay, family, each of you gets a box. Go around the house and put in the box the things that you really do want as memories from mom or dad or whatever you're not mom we're not taking him out of the house just so you know all right we're, but we're gonna we're gonna decide these are the things that your family has said are the keepsakes that they want that they would be interested in does anyone need anything else and when you get a no from everyone else okay so now mom and dad it's usually one or the other could be both rarely but now and then it's it's typically one or the other what is important for you around all of these things as well too right if and then can we start to hopefully categorize things from most important to least important you know um some people will say yeah well there's a lot of things in here though that the world is is so just throw away stuff and and you know uh, You've got all of these places where garbage goes and they're so full and I don't want I don't want to put any more things in a landfill. Okay, great. Are there things that you could donate? What what could we donate? Let's start gathering around things that are going to donate. And and remember, every time we pick one up, you say, "Oh, but I was going to give that to you." Remember, everyone in this room has said they don't want that. Right? That mm -hmm. is not something that they're interested in. So, could we donate this to an organization that would benefit from it? Could, could this be useful to somebody else? Because it's not being useful sitting in here. And if you pass on, who knows what's going to happen to it? You actually, at this point, while alive, have the ability to decide what will happen with this thing, where it will go, and how useful it will be. Right. So it just it really depends on the situation, but it's those kinds of discussions that I very often have with families to try to get them to be motivated to move and to get everyone to move together. 
and and not try to be going into different directions. You got to watch the family member who wants to go rogue and just throw everything away. All that's going to do is make the door get locked and and they're never going to talk to you again. They're never going to let you in again. And they're probably now going to collect more things to replace what they've lost. And since collecting is this the thing that makes them feel better, they'll go above and beyond because now they've been hurt by the fact that somebody's just gone in and thrown a bunch of things away as well, too. So we never recommend just just go in and throw everything. I, I That's never a recommendation of mine. To me, that would be, you know, you'd think that would be very scary for a person like you dive in and you just want to throw it all away. It is. To, that's just like a, you know a cold turkey sort of thing to an addiction of having all these things. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I'll go ahead, Julie. Do you find that um, the elderly have more hoarding issues than, you know, when I think about hoarding for whatever reason, I'm always thinking about the elderly. Yeah. Because that's when it really becomes apparent, right? Many people who are not elderly, can live lives that you wouldn't really know they had a hoarding problem. They may never invite you over to their home, right? You may always come and see you or meet you at a bar or restaurant or something like that. You've, you've never been in their house. Um, but there are some telltale signs potentially too. You, know, you can, we know that people who have pretty active hoarding miss a lot of work. It, it can actually be as interfering in your life as having schizophrenia. Wow. In terms of, days missed and and uh, just emotional turmoil that people are going through. And so those could be some signs, right? Uh, you, you might notice, and this is just one that I've noticed, uh, wrinkly clothes because there's not enough room to put an ironing board in. That's a good and do you actually want to start an iron in the house is the other question, because could that just set things up in flame if there's paper all over them? Right. So, you know, just little, I don't know, it's hard to say, you know, because I've done this for so long now, I catch these little types of things, but it's, it's some of that little type of stuff that kind of lets you, lets you know that this might be something that's going on. So and how would you like, know if, if a child has potential to be a hoarder, what would be the telltale signs for that? I think that that would just be noticed by parents or that this this person requires a clean out very often. And, and if you're looking at other kids and you're like, does, does your kid do that? No. <laughs> no. Okay. I mean, kids do collect things. There's no doubt. And kids, you know, sometimes they have fascinations in things, you know, you're, I'm not going to call a kid who loves dinosaurs a hoarder. If every time he's at the store, he wants a dinosaur. If some people give him dinosaurs and he has a dinosaur collection. Right. Mm -hmm. But on, on the, on the flip side, if somebody's getting older and now it's like, okay, well, we've moved on from dinosaurs now. We're not interested. You're still not allowed to take anything. Maybe that's a little bit of a sign that, okay, let's keep an eye on this, right? It, it's so hard to diagnose somebody younger with hoarding though. I, I haven't really been able to do anything till maybe well into the teen years that, that somebody might have this uh, just because of the fact that, like I said earlier, Parents really do just kind of intervene and say, well, I'm just putting my foot down. These are going to go and gonna box this up and we're going to make way for something. Yeah. Is there is there a tendency of more men, men than women or vice versa? Or is it pretty even between men and women? You know, 
I think that we probably hear more of women doing it, but uh, I I have had pretty equal across the board. Um, women will tend to shop more for things. Men will tend to gather more things. Men are more likely to... It's all in there, all in the room. So Yeah, men are more likely to find things on garbage day when they're taking a drive or walk around the neighborhood and say, oh, that could be useful and grab it and throw it in the trunk and bring it back home. And women seem to be more likely to be shopping and um, or or gathering donations or, or, or being, like we said earlier, the repository of other family or friends stuff. If people pass on, they, they take on the lot, shall we say. Wow. That's interesting. Um, Do you think that there's the opposite of that? Because I feel like in my own life, I'm always getting rid of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um. Here's the problem with thinking of it that way. If it's not interfering in your life, then Mm -hmm. it's not diagnosable, right? Mm -hmm. If you live a sparse life and that has no impact on you whatsoever, that's great. Now, let's say it was obsessive compulsive disorder and you had this intrusive thought that having things uh, in this worldly world means that you would be damned in the, in the eternal life because you're, you're not supposed to gather things in this world. You know, you know, that could be almost a religious scrupulosity kind of concern. And so you're getting rid of things constantly because you're afraid if you don't, you're going to go to hell. Now that's treatable, right? So I'd always want to know the motivation for somebody as to why they do or do not have stuff. Oh, that's really good to know. That's a good point to put out there. And to know where that boundary is of needing to address an issue. Yeah. There's really something there. Um, I mean, quick personal, when I said I had a personal side of this, and this is to anyone listening, on just one clear sign that we've even talked about. My my husband grew up, who's now almost 70, grew up uh, with his dad and his brother because his mother left when he was very young. I mean, like five. And they, she was sort of estranged from the, 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 the boys and et cetera, but then would kind of pop into their life from time to time. And everyone in that generation, I mentioned my husband's age so that people would know it's, it's a while ago. And they just, you know, there was a lot of anger that she left her kids. How could she do that? You know, that kind of reaction. And as years went on, she kind of came back in. And when I met her, actually, when we first got married, I I surprisingly really liked her. She was a wonderful, she's, she died many, well, several years ago, but very um, a smart, wonderful woman and uh, in many ways. And uh, then years after that, and she was, you know, not, she was semi-involved in our lives, not really, but um, she I, she was having trouble living on her own and getting older. And I asked, you know, the brothers, my husband and his brother, if you wouldn't mind if I took, took charge of some of it. She was, she and I had some of what a relationship. And at one point, all of a sudden out of the blue, she called me and said, and I, we had never been in her place, but, you know, we always thought maybe, you know, it's such a strain on the relationships because she left and so on and so forth. So no one has ever been in any of her places and um, all of a sudden, she called one day and said, I need to move. I really need help. I need to move like tomorrow. 
and, uh-huh. you know, taken completely off guard, surprised by this. And I said, why? And she said, I'm being evicted. Uh-huh. And um, I said, why are you being evicted? She said, because I'm having trouble paying my bill for the apartment. So we said, well, let's look at talk to the manager and thinking maybe we'll help her and just see what's going on. So at least she'll have another month or what have you. Said, no, no, you can't talk to them. And all of a sudden I was like, you know, this just wasn't she was reaching out for help, but didn't want the help. And um, so finally, I quickly called this wonderful, small Evanston moving company that we knew. Um, this is in Illinois for people listening wherever in the world um, and outside of Chicago or was in Chicago. And so calling a, a small moving company of these guys who we knew because they had moved us from one apartment to the other a couple of times. And the owner of the moving company called me and said, uh, Nancy, we have a, a bigger problem than you thought. We can't even get through the door. There are plastic garbage bags all over. And yep. she's being evicted because this place, she's a hoarder. This place yep. is filled with garbage. She was saving bags, huge bags of things, but also had not thrown out the garbage, had not. I mean, yep. it was a shocking realization because we, she's someone who appeared to, you know, have anxiety. She, you know, she had some major issues that she left her kids, et cetera, way, way back when. But, but this was a surprise to us of um, the, the word, you know, we have a hoarding issue here. And um, so that's why we use the eviction was actually a key to a new beginning because there was no choice. We had to find someplace for her to live, um, get all that stuff out of there, called in another group that helped because this moving company, they were movers. They had other jobs. They didn't have time. Yeah. to. So called in some people and, you know, I could have easily gone down there and, to do this, but I started to read the situation of, you would have never been able to, my do husband and I, never, we are not the never. ones. Oh. It's gotta be an objective somebody. Yeah. And I found it was very hard in those years to find resources for this. Now it's good to know, Yep. This is being talked about more and that you're saying it's its own diagnosis and that there yep. is more of a phone call to make or, or, you know, you Google it and there's going to be a few things that pop up. But this kicked off the rest of her life, which was, you know, several years of getting help and therapy. I mean, for the, she was like 80 or so for the first time going into therapy, really coming out a better person, enjoying her life more. And the next apartment did not have, you know, we really kept an eye on it, but she didn't have that reoccurring. It was really an interesting process to see when, you know, we were family members not knowing much yeah. about this whole thing. Like someone said she's a hoarder. I was like, what? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know what it is, but so, you know, it's that sign of when someone's not letting you through the door and you don't know why for us, that that's, would have been for, thinking, sign. Back, mm-hmm. thinking back. That was our yeah. real sign. And and also thinking back, that eviction gave this woman the key to a better life for the rest of her, you know, 10, 12 years of life. And um, you sometimes know, during bad things, good things come out of it. Yeah. You got that right. Yeah. Yep. I'll always pay attention. Gosh, yep. this has been so eye opening. Um, we can't thank you enough for discussing this topic. And we look forward to um, our part two. Thank awesome. you so much. This was a, was just uh, enlightening. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at 
behindourdooratmail.com. That's behindourdooratmail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, Leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.